We're trying to do primary care in a way that um, makes sense of some of the mess that we live in and tries to find solutions to that. So if you come and visit and do a normal surgery, then you just it feels very much like normal GP land quite a lot of the time. Patients come in, they need some help. Um, we have doctors and nurses and healthcare assistants and admin and all the same processes that happen. And the difference really is probably about attitude. It's probably about complexity of problems. It's probably about how you interact with the systems around you. And a lot of it's about believing that change can happen and then inspiring patients that that change can happen. Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Finding Fair Health podcast. On today's episode, I'm talking to the inspirational Laura Nielsen. Having lived in Oldham after finishing school and during medical school, Laura became increasingly frustrated that her neighbours and friends were getting a raw deal when it came to health. In 2008, Laura decided as a medical student to set up her own GP service, Hope Citadel, with an aim of trying to tackle this inequality in healthcare experiences by so many in this area of Manchester. The NHS-funded company has grown from there over the last 11 years with nine GP surgeries across Greater Manchester. It is nationally acclaimed, respected and a pioneering example to other areas of the country of how we deliver healthcare to those most in need. There is a lot of learning from this amazing team but also there is something special about Laura. Every time I hear Laura speak I'm inspired so for this reason I couldn't wait to get her to come and have a chat on the podcast today. So Laura, welcome to Finding Fair Health Podcast. Thank you. All a bit embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's not embarrassing at all. So um, Laura, tell us a little bit from you just about your journey so far. So I first became aware of health inequalities on a gap year when I lived in Manchester and prior to that I'd always lived in quite an affluent place, gone to quite a posh school. Um, I had never really seen poverty. And um, I think when I first experienced it, it was quite confusing, quite confounding, really. Um, and since then, I guess I've made it my work to try and improve things and to bring change. And some days that's really amazing, and other days that's really hard work and a bit messy. Um, so yeah, so as you said in the introduction, we've been running Hope Citadel for just over 10 years. I would never have thought it would, I'd be here 10 years on. Um, in some ways it feels like a long time, in other ways it feels really short and that we still know not very much. <laughs> so yeah, mm. that's kind of... So tell us a bit about what Hope Citadel is, and I, I know you're obviously trying to tackle sort of some of the health inequalities yeah. that you saw when you came, first came yeah. to... Um, Manchester but what 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 was it all about so when you live in an area and you see how an area operates um, it became quite clear for Fitton Hill which is the area that I lived in that health was something that was being done quite badly at the time so the estate have a GP practice and the people got allocated a GP and the kind of density of poverty really meant that people didn't receive very good care and Tudor Hart has always written for a long time about the inverse care law and I think we all probably academically know the inverse care law but I think when you see the inverse care law you realise that it's 
like multi-layered and multifactorial and it's about people and systems and choices and how it all interplays. Um, and so I hope City on one level is just a normal GP organisation really. We have normal contracts, nothing special about them. Um, but we're trying to do primary care in a way that um, makes sense of some of the mess that we live in and tries to find solutions to that. So if you come and visit and do a normal surgery, then you just it feels very much like normal GP land quite a lot of the time. Patients come in, they need some help. Um, we have doctors and nurses and healthcare assistants and admin and all the same processes that happen. And the difference really is probably about attitude. It's probably about complexity of problems. It's probably about how you interact with the systems around you. And a lot of it's about believing that change can happen and then inspiring patients that that change can happen. Mm. So That sounds amazing. So talk to me a little bit more about how it's different from sort of standard general practice. So I think we... So when we started, I wanted to do... I hoped that we would do some really good medicine and we do some really good community engagement and that this ethos of hope would flow through. So what that means in reality is that general practice is quite a complicated thing to work in. So you do need systems and you need to comply with a lot of regulations. So a lot of that is probably fairly standard and we work hard at that. But then it's about the people who work in the surgeries and what we try and do is find people who have a real passion for helping for they're really compassionate and that they want to be the best at whatever discipline they are in. And then we just try and land them in a place where they can thrive themselves and then be creative in how they respond to the need. And one of the things I think that's probably different is that we try and keep an attitude where primary care is hugely porous and you'll see lots of different stuff of people's lives and we try and keep a openness about that all of that is medicine so there isn't a kind of line where that doesn't isn't important in the practice um, and I think that's the, the attitude of just trying to find out the whole story the true story what's going on with people trying to unpick the problems behind the problems that's that's the bit that makes hope a little different so in terms of all the normal stuff of general practice you have to code well you have to manage your fridges well you have to do normal stuff that CQC and compliance people want. But the bit that makes it work is, is all about the people who work here and their attitude towards work and to our patients. It's so interesting that you talk about how you have to sort of do all of that standard stuff yeah. and do that well. How much do you think a lot of the stuff that we're seeing as GPs is about the other stuff and not just the sort of core medicine? So if you work in air deprivation, you need to be as clinically good as you can be. So you are more likely to see um, like more extreme pathology. You're more likely to see late diagnosis. You're more likely to see conditions that interconnect. And you're actually more likely to work on your own more. So our patients aren't very good at going to secondary care. They don't particularly like outpatients. Um, so your clinical medicine needs to be as good as it can be. And one of my colleagues talks about surfing is best where the waves are highest. And you will see a lot of medicine in um, deprived areas of the country. And you can either be fearful of that or you can embrace it. And so actually if you're a doctor who likes the problem solving of medicine and the geekness of working out drugs and, and all that kind of stuff, deprivation medicine is brilliant. But you also need to then be able to communicate with people and gain people's trust and work out that um, the way people's minds work is different depending on where you live and where you work and what resources are available to you. So the kind of ideas, concerns and expectations is, is true, but it's different in areas of deprivation. The idea of like co-planning care is just quite bonkers in areas of deprivation. It means something very different. And so you need staff and clinicians who can navigate that as well. And I think it's easy in medicine to start thinking, medicine is increasingly getting reductionalist, so our pathways that come out of NICE tend to be about single diseases, 
and they get more and more and more specific. But actually, when you're in primary care and you're in deprivation primary care, you realise that reductionist is just not helpful. So we talk about the fact that probably for our population, we never need another antihypertensive drug invented because we've got enough to, to manage with all the physiology we know about. But what we do need is how we get people to take them, how we get people to know why they take them. Um, and that is a different clinical skill set to somebody inventing another antihypertensive. And when you look at medicine as a whole, it's going more and more down smaller and smaller rabbit warrens in some ways. But primary care is always about being fantastic generalists. Mm. And I think we've become more generalists as generalists. The longer we work, the more general we become. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as things get more complicated and complex, would you say that's the same as well? Yeah. yeah. I think the, the ability of somebody, of a generalist, to pull lots of dis, what appear to be disparate strands of activity or knowledge or thought processes together into a cohesive plan or narrative is really important. And also being able to recognise what is important in patient care, what isn't. Mm. So some things that hospital specialists get very excited about are actually so unuseful. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter to the patient. It won't affect their quality of life at all. It's a part of the system they don't particularly want to interact with. And being able to realise that and then hold that space is quite important as well. Mm. So... And when we talk about generalism, I talk about generalism in terms of it really does matter how the benefit system works, it matters how what our housing system's like, it matters what our nurse provision's like, you know, it matters what our early years experience is like. And that for me is as interesting as the ins and outs of drug interactions and new things being created. Mm. Because that's what will make a difference to our communities as well. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. You mentioned that you thought sort of you think in some cases co-planning is a bit bonkers. What do you mean by that? Um, I remember as a student being told that you have to ask the patient what they think mm-hmm. and what they would like to happen next. And I tried it once, and I was told, "Well, you're the effing doctor. <laughs> what do you think?" And I think in areas of deprivation, there is still um, an acknowledgement that that people come to see clinicians because they actually want some expert advice and they take that advice and they want your honest opinion Um, co-planning actually often comes down to logistics in deprivation you know which hospitals you want to go to is not necessarily the choice of which hospital's got the best rating but which bus service can get there or do you want to go to hospital is it worth the half a day off work you know to Mm. sit and you'll often have conversations about you know, if you go to outpatients, are you going to see an SHO and is that worth half a day of work on a zero-hours contract? That co-planning is very different from, I think, what's taught in training, which is much more about, you know, the ins and outs of different therapies. Mm-hmm. So co-planning is just different. It's important, mm-hmm. but it's different. And often there's just a different culture. So where we are in the northwest, there's a great culture it's slightly bartering slightly bargaining you just do this for me I'll do this for you now that would never be written in a textbook people might consider that to be ethically interesting if you're a very purist middle class person but that's how culture works here mm-hmm. what do you mean by that do you mean sort of if you if you come in regularly for your checkups for your blood pressure um will will help you with something else what do you mean by yeah, that yeah so if you know we've it's not it's not quid pro quo, but it's a kind of you know we've you would like a letter for your housing about your damp, and we would like your kids vaccinated, and can okay. we make those two things happen? Yeah, brilliant. Okay. So yeah. one isn't dependent on the other, and obviously everybody would get the letter anyway. But there is a kind of it's a different a culture, yeah, yeah, and not being afraid to step into that space really, mm-hmm. um, as that would never happen in well, it's never been taught. Is it? No. 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 <laughs> in fact, many professors might sit with their head in their hands at this point. <laughs> it's a different... It's understanding there's a different culture. Yeah, yeah, and working out what's best for the patient, maybe. Um, and so that kind of brings in the sort of patient-centred care side of things, Laura. And mm. I know um, 
Hope Sister Dan has been has been doing some really interesting things about like sort of focus care to try yeah. and try and be sort of very patient centred. Yeah. And a lot of what you're talking about is thinking about when you're thinking about um, whether someone's going to take off day of work with a zero hours contract. Knowing your patient really well and knowing mm. the ins and outs of what's going on for them in their lives is important. What what's Hope Sister Dan doing in terms of focus care and patient centred care? So focus care came out of our experience of having patients who um, just present with a whole hodgepodge of problems that don't really fit into normal medicine. So you might present with depression or not being able to sleep very well, but actually when you the story behind that is of um, significant pressure at home with rent or debt or domestic violence or your children not behaving very well or problems with your neighbours or and actually to sort out the depression in primary care you could just prescribe citalopram but that's not really going to actually shift anything and so we started looking at how do we actually unpick some of the problems behind the problems so in the northwest we've got issues of fuel poverty and or generalised poverty and food shortages and showers and people having access to electricity and if you solve those problems often you solve medical problems um, so focus care started about 10 years ago with Ruth who is a health visitor by background and she just went and visited people in their homes and worked out what was really going on and then stitching together a plan with them and with other agencies often to get them into a better place and what we, we started doing it because we felt as a workforce that if we didn't do something we would kind of sink on the workload and um, and then once we'd done it for a while we started looking at our outcomes and we found that our clinical outcomes were significantly better than they were expected to be when focus care was involved and it's an idea that's not unique to us different people try to do it in different ways but that idea of unpicking complicated problems um, so if you do the right thing you get the right outcomes and that flows through for us. So, I mean, I guess classic medics might say it's not medicine, it's social care. But but social care is a different thing now. Um, for us, it's, it's, it's how do you respond with compassion to the people in front of you. And um, medicine has historically always got its hands dirty in the realms of public health and policy and working and living in um, environments and I don't think the profession needs to shy away from that history now. I think it's probably needed more than ever. Um, and actually what's interesting about it is that if you do the right thing, then your clinical outcomes follow, which mm. is bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, why do you say that? It's bonkers. Because it's kind of... that makes sense to me. It's counterintuitive to what we're taught, isn't it? So, you know, if you want to manage high blood pressure you prescribe an antihypertensive and you get them to take the tablet you, you know at no point have you been told that to manage hypertensive you, you manage depression and you manage home environment and you manage stress and then your blood pressure either sorts itself out or the diet improves and sorts itself out or people are more willing to take the medicines and it sorts itself out so but it's not very one plus one medicine which is what we're all trained in so when you're employing staff to work for you, how do you, how do you work out whether someone's going to be able to be good at all of this stuff? Or... So it depends what job you've, what role you've got. Um, GPs, we want really good GPs, we want clinically good GPs. There's no point going to see a compassionate doctor if they're still really crap, because you'll still get really bad healthcare. So the pr- predominant role of a GP is to be the best GP they can be, and they're paid to do clinical medicine to learn to be good at clinical medicine. And then the rest of it's normally people who are soft-hearted or like they'll often articulate frustration at the system or um, frustration at what they've seen. And so you kind of pick them out. Um, focus care workers, we often, they are people who have don't want to become managers, don't want to go up the career ladder in whatever thing they've trained in they love they love grassroots but they often express frustration at the siloedness of all the roles they come from and that they just want to make a difference 
And so you're looking for people with experience and wisdom and grit and determination to mm. go and do that. And if you're a receptionist working for us, like any other GP practice, we want people who are smiley and upbeat and generally manage to keep themselves happy in an awful shift. And people who can make people laugh and deflate difficult situations and people who have a gut instinct for when something strange is happening that they can get help. You know, it's the kind of same yeah. as you want in general practice. It's just, I think we actively value it and look for it in recruitment. Mm. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it, and it shows with the amazing team that you managed to pull together in all your practices. Oh, they're great. Um, yeah. So, obviously, as I said in my intro, that um, Hope Citadel and Shared Camp are well-known across the country and admired and how does this compare do you think to what's going on in the west of manchester do you work well together do you work alongside do you how does it how do you sit in um the west yeah. of manchester i think we um we, we're collaborative what i want for people in manchester is to have good health care mm-hmm. and some of that is delivered through hope citadel and some of that most of it isn't and will never be um what i want is as a profession for doctors to be the best they can be to look up a bit from the day job and reimagine what healthcare could be. We will help and support when we're asked to. The week is, as you know, in primary care, the week is quite busy anyway. You can be remarkably stretched just doing the day job. So, um, but yeah, I think I think we are probably helpful in showing what's possible. On good days we're brilliant, on bad days we're not brilliant, like everyone else. And we are definitely learning from people around us. I'm hugely grateful that, um, you know, we've adopted other people's schemes, we've crossed ideas, we've used other people's methodologies um, in our practices. And I think general practice should always be a place where we share ideas and best practice and... um, practicalities and solutions because it's a tough job and it's a tough work and you don't it's not helped when everyone's competitive really Mm I hope we're all I hope we're always a blessing but that's what I'd like you know I'd always like to be seen as a positive thing rather than anything else yeah 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 yeah. Um, definitely (laughs) well we all kind of aim for that um, and so how much do you get involved with all like there's obviously a lot of politics um around tackling health inequalities there's years of austerity and cuts yeah. do you as an organization sort of keep out of the political side of things or do you get stuck in i think doctors and people working in healthcare have a role to speak out when they see things that are wrong um Clinically, we'd call it whistleblowing, but you know, often we're talking about things that aren't clinical, actually. Um, how you do that is, is interesting and tricky. I, we have gathered information about the impact of universal credit. Oldham was one of the first areas to get universal credit. It's been here for eight and a half years. It's had a profound impact on our town. Um, I will speak when I get the opportunity about what I see and I'm really kind of probably more... I'm passionate about social justice rather than any particular politics. But I think there is a role at frontline medicine because we see the consequences of these policies. And there aren't many bits of society who have the voice and the education and the ability to communicate who see it. And so if we see it and we stay quiet, then we're complicit. And I don't want to be complicit. So I'm not a massive campaigner. I don't write a huge amount. I'm not an academic. I publish nothing, but I will continue to say what I see. And how you present that may well be something that's interesting for the next chunk of time. Um, I think think I'm just realising that there is a real validity in our voice for the first time. I've always been kind of not quite sure whether what we're seeing is what everyone else is seeing and actually it is what's happening so it needs to be said but yeah and what do you think's made you realize that validity or is it that people have suddenly started to listen or is it um what is it 
Um, I think there's an integrity to being in this place for a long time. So often people in public sector jobs move around quite a lot. So, I mean, I think I've, we're on our fourth NHS commissioning organisation. You know, people in the local authority often move on. So I think there's a real validity and integrity to being in the place for a long time. That primary care has has a real history in as well, actually. And I think there's just a... I'm older now. I was quite young when we started. Just a bit more confidence. And the other thing is that it's not changed. And I still feel that anger. So the health outcomes in Oldham haven't shifted. The poverty statistics are getting worse. The inequality is getting worse. Um, I genuinely feel very moved by the stories of some of our children growing up in some of our deprived communities. I feel really physically sick when I meet victims of trafficking and, and grooming and those issues are here and they're now and um, for me I feel really um, I feel really compelled to try and do something and I don't often don't quite know what that is but you know if I see it then I should speak and we should speak and that's one of the things that I um, get frustrated about medicine is that we are quite good at not not rocking the boat or we rock the boat about contracts or money or buildings or and they're all really important but but we should be absolutely rocking the boat on grooming and trafficking and our early years provision Hmm. I've always loved that about you Dora because you're not someone who has taken that classic route of um sort of doctor training Um, and I love the fact that you this is something that's always been inspiring for me is that you've you saw something that was wrong when you were a medical student and thought whoa hang on a second this isn't right let's try and do something to sort this out and that takes quite a lot of gumption I think um or stupidity <laughs> that's how you look at it but yeah I don't think it's stupidity that we've created um but um yeah um I find that quite interesting because as doctors we're not really we're not taught to take any risks because risks for us can be can quite big consequences. Um, and so we, even small mistakes can have big consequences as doctors. So we don't, we're not taught to take risks. We're not taught to try things out. We're not taught to sort of speak up while we're both that sort yeah. of thing. Um, do you think that we should be doing more of that? I think medicine, medicine has a real history of, of, clever, bright, compassionate doctors speaking truth. Mm. And whether it was about water systems and cholera or whether it's been about workhouses or, um, you know, I mean, it's just, you look through history and doctors, there has always been a cohort of doctors that have been socially minded and brave. And I would love to see a generation come through that, that, that do that collectively that for me being, I don't do huge amounts of clinical medicine, but for me being a doctor is a vocation and it's more than a job. And I love the technical side of medicine. If I wasn't busy doing this, I would, I'm a proper geek. I would quite happily work out, you know, physiology of ventilation systems or you know, any bit of medicine I find deeply fascinating. I love the technical stuff. I love the problem solving. I would be quite content spending my time you know in ICU or something but that's not what where my life's taken me but I really wish doctors were braver and mm. and, and, and saw what they say I mean I've recently watched a couple of things about the trauma surgeons from London speaking up at knife crime and you're like absolutely I'm sure the personal satisfaction of doing an amazing operation to save someone's life with a complex knife wound must be deeply satisfying but that is incredibly selfish if we as a profession don't stand up and talk about we shouldn't be having to do it what we're seeing and I think mm. I think often in medicine we get confused between our personal satisfaction because we're intelligent clever people at problem solving and then realising the problem shouldn't happen in the first place <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'd love to see more 
people think like that. Like, and 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 then and also the other thing about medicine that makes it really difficult is we have lots of lines. You know, I'm not a public health doctor. I've never done the training. You know, so therefore, can I speak on public health issues? And we create all these barriers for people being able to express what they see, or we create all these things where people feel not confident. And there's this kind of end of the rainbow when when everyone's senior, when they're a consultant, when they've finished all this training, and then people finish that training and realise they still can't speak. And I think we just need to be learned to be humans as well as doctors. Mm. I love that, that we've, we've got to be brave, we've got to be human. And, yeah, we do have a sort of advocating almost political um, role as doctors and um, yeah I really like that Laura so you've talked a lot about kind of what's motivating you now would you say what's motivating you now is the same stuff that was motivating you 10 15 years ago yeah unfortunately yeah yeah I don't um, yeah you look at the marmot curves they've not shifted you look at our local life expectancy it's not shifted um, you look at our school readiness locally, it's not shifting. It's There's lots of good work going in, um, but we haven't, we haven't cracked the problems yet, so they're still there. Mm-hmm. And I would love to be able to go, oh, it's all sorted, I can go. I'll do something different, but um, that's not the reality that we live in. Um, and it's complicated. I think, I think I've got much more... Um, understanding about the complexity of it I'm really glad I didn't know then what I know now because I wouldn't have bothered trying but as you as your understanding grows thankfully so does your kind of resilience and grit and so yeah it's definitely still still motivating at the moment Hmm. yeah I find that really interesting that when you say that if you knew then what you know now you wouldn't probably you might not have done it which is really interesting no Hmm. And I think I think there was a window in time that was really like just very short with me, and um, that I just happened to fall through. And actually, the naivety was probably really freeing (laughs) because I think so. It was so naive when when we started, when I started, that there was a kind of brilliant innocence about that that was like remarkably freeing because I didn't. I didn't know what would happen or could happen or what all the barriers were. So I just had to go. Yeah. 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 And what things do you think you've learned along the way? Um, People are brilliant. Like working with people is fantastic. I love the people I work with. I've worked with some people for over a decade and they're my, you know, closest friends in many ways and they are my people who keep me sane and um hopefully I keep them sane um I think I think I've learned that more is possible than you ever believe I think I've learned that more is possible than you can imagine um I think I've learned that solutions often kind of emerge you just have to kind of sit in it long enough and think hard enough um and actually the world is like a really amazing place and I am more more in love with primary care than I've ever been which is bonkers because the rest of GP land is like moaning and groaning and seemingly on Facebook but um, what an amazing place to work and what an amazing job to do and I would encourage all GPs to not get pissed off about the triviality of the day to day and I know that it's hard work I'm not saying it's not but what a privilege to sit with people and help them and hear their stories and be part of their lives and I know that you know simple things like when when my child was sick meeting a doctor that could help was just brilliant you know and we get to do that we get to be those people and um, there are problems with the system and there are problems with the workload and there's problems but essentially it was a phenomenal job to do I love the fact that you talk about all the people you've met along the way a talk you did um earlier this year that I heard you doing you, you talked about um, it was kind of Harry Potter themed mm-hmm. and you talked about the need for Patronus and love and kindness abolishing darkness mm. 
And in my mind, that fits into that. So sort of some of the stuff you learn is that actually, when there's love and kindness, that kind of is is one of the solutions to all of these. Yeah. Often kindness opens up creativity, and then creativity often allows solutions. And kindness is like the opposite of pride. And and so often in medicine, you go into meetings and. What's really going on the room is a load of pride and protectionism of my space and my ideas and my empire. And a lot of it's just a bit bonkers. And kindness is like the opposite of that. So kindness and humility are hugely useful in unlocking things. And we all want to be treated kindly. I want to be with people who are gentle and compassionate. And most people do. And... Yeah, and a Patronus is really interesting because a Patronus is that harnessing of that positive experience of love in Harry Potter to then like defeat the darkness or send a message. And so when I talk about Patronuses, I talk about things that show that you're on the right way. And for us, you know, things like seeing our smear rates climb is a Patronus. Seeing our patients stop drinking alcohol is a Patronus. And they might not be... They might not... Um, still be abstinent six months later but for the time that they're not drinking there's a there's a spark of light and um i would i think that's really important in medicine in medicine we're taught to report significant events and reflect on complaints and um you know never events and all this kind of stuff but actually patronus is, is, is like what what sort of sparks that showing you're in the right direction and you're in the right way and who are the patients that you're really proud of and who are the patients you you really enjoy seeing not all the ones that you hate seeing and so for me trying to keep that in mind in the day-to-day can balance some of that as well so yeah I my grandma used to call it counting your blessings every day and then but for me I I think it's important to try and find the patronuses in your day-to-day Mm-hmm. And that along with recognising what a privileged role it is, I think those two things can be really um, helpful yeah. um, I know for me in, in making me feel like I'm doing a meaningful job and yeah. really making a difference. How much does your faith play a part in all of, in all of it? Um, for me personally, my faith is like, hugely important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I feel a deep sense of like purpose in life to to make a better world. I feel a deep. I think my understanding of social justice comes from my like okay, my Christian faith. I can't hide that. That's that's a massively deep part of me, and um, and that's kind of part of who I am. I'm, you know, I've met amazing people in this area of work of loads of different faiths and of no faith and of not really knowing about not believing in anything and there is something about humanity that crosses crosses that but for me my faith is probably the bit that means I haven't given up or walked away so um, yeah for me it's an important important thing yeah and I love anything that helps us I find it interesting to think about values. So would you say that, obviously, you've, you've, you've talked a lot about social justice. Yeah. you know what your values are? Um, so I think uh, my children are no more important than anyone else's children. really hit me when my kids were small. And I could look after them and I could, I could care for them. And I had neighbours and friends who really struggled to do that for their children but their children were as beautiful and wonderful as my children um, for me I just think I, life is really short and I get to live this life once and I could live it where I probably earn more money and I could live it probably having a better work-life balance and I could live it with probably even like accolades and publishing and stuff but it might be a bit meaningless at the end and I would rather live in my life where I make a difference and I think you can make a difference and I think my coming back to the faith question I think 
for me, it just also provides a kind of bigger imagination and a higher bar of what is possible than is held in society generally. So yeah, I get huge, I get sustained through my faith and I get like slightly put back together again. But for me as well, it just allows uh, like a vision of the art of the possible. And um, yeah, and that humankind is just so precious, really. All humankind. <laughs> yeah, that must be a bit of a crossover between your work life and your family life. Do you feel like this crosses over a lot um, into your sort of family life and your time outside of work? Yeah, I mean, my I'm very lucky that my family are just hugely, not supportive is the wrong word, graceful really. My husband hopes it has taken up huge amounts of time, it's taken up quite a lot of emotional energy, off, like takes over quite a lot of my headspace. Um, and, you know, ebbs and flows in over 11 years, there's been good bits and terrible bits and everything in the middle. And my, my husband and my kids have always been accommodating of that and enthusiastic about that really. Um, I think my parents are a bit befuddled still. <laughs> I think they would quite. My poor dad would love to be able to go down the pub and just be able to tell his friends that I'd finally qualified as something or that I had a proper job. He keeps asking when I'm going to get a proper job. Which is quite <laughs> funny, isn't it, really? But yeah, I think my family, my, my wider family, are completely befuddled with the whole thing. But my, my little family, um, I've always been really supportive. And I've actually. I guess quite like quite a lot of people our generation probably are like really encouraged and supported by our friends. I've had some, you know, I've got some really good friends who it just wouldn't be possible without them. So yeah, yeah, completely. And would you say you ever make time to relax, Laura? Oh yeah, I'm really good yeah. at sleeping. Okay, good. I know I'm really good <laughs> at sleeping. I'm like a nightmare if I don't sleep a lot. And um, yeah, no, I've I definitely have fun I'm learning the piano which I play really badly and um, I go to this like yoga class where really all you do is lie on a mat and listen to tinkly music and um, yeah I I have fun when I'm I love you know I love music I love dancing I love having a giggle with friends yeah isn't you can't you can't work all the time and if you do life's really miserable I'm really miserable so yeah dance and be merry and stupid and at the weekends I'm really really quite stupid like yeah brilliant box sets and eat takeaway and like pretend that I don't need to heal the house (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely I can definitely relate to that um (laughs) so yeah so that's really important for us to um to not work all the time and to look after ourselves. How, how can we help health professionals, Jamie? I don't necessarily mean just doctors, but health professionals work in these really challenging environments to, to do that more because um, I think we're all guilty of sometimes working a bit too much and knowing that that's bad for our health, but we kind of do it anyway because we see that there's things we can do to help our patients and we do try and go above and beyond sometimes. Yeah, I think you have to learn that through experience. I think I've definitely got it completely wrong and then had to row back. Um, so things I like done is uh, done is often better than perfect. <laughs> so particularly if you're in a high achieving or perfectionist personality, it's quite easy to carry on and carry on and carry on. But I often say done. Done is better than perfect most of the time. Um, some things will just sort themselves out. There's a few things you can be quite lazy about and they'll sort themselves out. Um, and then just work out what, what gives you joy in life and what feeds you as a person and what feeds your soul and do it. Like, um, And they're often quite small things and small amounts of time. Um, you know, you can... I can be completely... My mood can be completely changed by sitting with a friend and, t- and laughing about something completely innocuous 10 minutes at lunchtime. You know, and that doesn't take huge amounts of time, but it is about me making sure that I see people who I like and who like me and that we have enough connection to have a laugh with. And, um, yeah, enjoy time off. Go and walk in woods and, you know... And also, I've really learned that you don't have to be good at your hobbies. <laughs> so you, can, you have to be good at your job. 
but you could be really rubbish but really love your hobbies and that's been really freeing for me so I have loads of hobbies I'm completely rubbish at but I really enjoy them and that's important yeah yeah I agree with that I don't think I'm very good at any of my hobbies either Laura so yeah thank you (laughs) I love that um done's better than perfect so do you find that we talked a little bit earlier about things being a little bit frustrating at times working in these areas but yeah how do you how do you manage those frustrations because you must have multiple frustrations on a day-to-day basis that come your way um or things going wrong I don't know we're talking about the heating not working at one of the practices this morning um so like that's constantly coming your way how do you deal with all of that um it's just life is never going to be so like if you think that there is a rainbow at the end of the rainbow that your working life is going to be like predictable calm and always go your way then you're completely deluded because like that is not life so you have to learn to live in the imperfection that is normal life and that's fun and then you know stuff always comes up silly stuff annoying stuff always comes up um, you can change what you can change and you can hope to change bigger stuff. But my self, this is really interesting, my self-esteem, I don't, I've really tried to disconnect from what I achieve. Um, because I might not achieve anything else the rest of my life. And that doesn't make me a better or worse person. That's, And so that's quite interesting to try and shift. Um, and, you know, I do get frustrating, but you can't, you can't live in a space of frustration for very long it's really exhausting and you can't live in a place of like dourness very long it's really exhausting so you have to be you have to learn to live in the place that you live in and find joy and funniness and quirkiness and and ridiculousness in it you know i'd love to change loads of stuff most of it's not in my power to change so i can give it a go and then i can walk away and um you know do something fun at the end of the day. I don't carry it with me all the time. No. I, I'm not a... I'm not, not taking sort of personal responsibility for it. No, no, no. I just do yeah. my bit. And my bit might help and my bit might not help some days. And, yeah. and then, you know, that's it really. Mm. I think there's a huge... People put a huge pressure on themselves to be like Mary Poppins for the world. Well, that's yeah. bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you talk to people who I work day to day, I'm a bit of a disaster though in day to day. You know, I turn up to the wrong places at the wrong time with the wrong staff and I'm disorganised and ditzy and and so I could get they could get entirely frustrated with me and I could I can get frustrated myself, but but actually it doesn't help anyone. So you have to learn to kind of dance through life and encourage other people to dance through life as well. And there's a rhythm to that, and there's a change of pace in that. And even if you're not very good at dancing, or... yeah, yeah, really terrible at dancing. Yeah, but I'm amazing after after several glasses of wine. <laughs> I think I am anyway. Isn't everyone? <laughs> <laughs> it's Christmas soon. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Lord, I don't want to keep you all day because I know you're busy. But um, I always finish with two questions. So my last question mm-hmm. for you is: if you would do one thing um, to improve. Um, health inequalities um, what would that one thing be? Um, find ways of parents having really good attachment to their kids I think the science of that all is going to be borne out we know that attachment and that early stuff just forms your brain and forms your resilience and forms your personality and um, and then probably forms a lot of your physiology later on so I would love to see that specialness being valued and upheld. And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you create it. I don't know how you put environments in place where it's easier. Um, I was definitely not a very good mum when I had very small children. They were hard work and screamed all the time and I was rubbish and cried. And the whole thing was a disaster. But um, So I'm not, it's not a mum issue. It's a, it's a kind of how do we as society help that and when you look at deprivation and you look at the link with attachment the kind of evidence is fairly clear mm. so don't know how you solve that one <laughs> I know you have got some parent support groups I saw some signs in the yeah. waiting room for here don't you yeah. that's a small step along the way yeah so I was kind of towing the water towards mm. looking at that thinking about that mm. and then we, we talk quite a lot as a group about how you praise 
praise parents and build confidence in them and you can do it as a lot as a face-to-face clinician you can you can speak positivity and truth quite often into parents when they're expecting the opposite and that's quite powerful mm. Mm. yeah yeah well that's definitely something that as health professionals we can all take away yeah. is the importance of um being positive and yeah, you tell a mum. Tell a mum who's been up all night with a crying child that they're doing really well and they've done everything right, and that you haven't got a magic wand, but you're just so proud of them. It sounds patronising out of context, but in context, you just see their shoulders like drop down, and they kind of they mm-hmm. they feel seen, yeah. and they feel more confident to carry on. So, you know, how do we? You can put resilience into people. Yeah. In simple ways, often. Yeah, yeah. And Laura, can you tell us a book, one book that you would recommend? Yeah, I've just I've just read Shita, who's um, a psychiatrist from Wales. He's written a book called Growing Pains, and it's about his career as a child psychiatrist. And the stories in it are amazing. And it was just beautifully written, and had some real hope, but also left you thinking about life and situations and mm. working out what you could do so I really enjoyed that reading that one mm. and that brings in some of the sort of childhood development yeah stuff. that's kind of I'm, that's my current thing I'm thinking about at the moment <laughs> yeah um, Laura thank you so much for talking to us today I've, I've always enjoyed talking to you but particularly like hearing about your just do attitude and being brave I really like your the kindness and the caring aspect of the backbone of everything you do and strive to achieve but also not being afraid to have a laugh and um, make mistakes and joke around to to try and keep us all sane so thank you so much (laughs) (laughs) I'll speak to you soon thank you all for listening you will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website if you haven't been on there already please do check this out at www.fairhealth.com fairhealth.org.uk It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter at fairhealthuk or at rmsteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.